Hi, my name is Stephanie Gordon. I'm one of your co-hosts for the Zurich North America Future of Risk podcast. Today, we're going to talk about earthquakes. Earthquakes are truly among some of the most disruptive natural phenomena we face due to both their unpredictability and their potential for wide-scale damage and injury. They've also been in the news a lot lately with everything that's happened in Turkey and Syria. So we thought we'd take a little time to talk with Jimmy Durkin, who's the natural hazards specialist for the U.S. representing Zurich Resilient Solutions, which is also known as ZRS. So Jimmy, welcome. Thank you so much for coming to share your expertise and your thoughts on this really timely topic with us. Great. Thank you, Stephanie. Appreciate you guys having me here. So in the intro, I mentioned that the Turkey-Syria earthquakes have been a lot in the news lately, but we know there are also, you know, other areas of the world that are very susceptible to quake risk. Can you talk a little bit about some of the places that we see as being most susceptible in the world? When it comes to earthquakes, as many of us have experienced throughout our lives, really a lot of the earth is in a seismically prone region. When it comes to history, the most seismically active regions are found around the rims of the Pacific Ocean in the region we know as the Ring of Fire. This area includes a huge stretch of land across multiple continents, including the Americas, Asia, and a lot of Western Pacific Islands. This Ring of Fire, it includes the West Coast of the U.S., so California, Washington, Oregon, Canada, Mexico as well, and their West Coast. Um, So a lot of the areas that we are very familiar with when it comes to seismic activity here locally in the United States. Historically speaking, over 80% of the world's earthquake activity has actually occurred in this wide region. Additionally, over two-thirds of the world's volcanoes are actually located in this region as well, of course, leading to that name, Ring of Fire. Although this is such a huge area that accounts for a lot of the historically recorded seismic activity, There are a lot of other areas around the world that are exposed to earthquake risk. This includes locations around what we call the Alpide earthquake belt, which actually includes those regions of Turkey and Syria that experienced those devastating earthquakes in February, as well as other very seismically active regions such as the Mediterranean and the Himalayas. Focusing on the USA just a little bit, we also know that seismic activity is an active concern among many regions of the country beyond just the West Coast and the areas where we traditionally associate earthquakes with the country. That surprises Um, me. Yeah. 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 It's it's really interesting to see how widespread the seismic risk is across the U.S. And there's been several devastating earthquakes that have occurred, historically speaking, in the middle of the country in areas like Missouri, as well as on the East Coast in Charleston, South Carolina specifically. Uh, We have the New Madrid Seismic Zone, which again is centered in Missouri, as well as many coastal faults up and down the East Coast, which do lead to earthquakes. Many of us have actually probably experienced an earthquake in the Northeast and Mid-Atlantic going back to 2011 with an event that originated in Central Virginia and caused damages and was felt up and down the East Coast. Actually, that earthquake led to damages to the Washington Monument that led to it being closed to the public for over three years. So really, our earthquake-exposed region is probably far broader than many of us think. I had no idea, and I did not actually remember that, so it's really interesting. Just for comparison, when you talk about the quake-prone regions in the U.S., for instance, do we see earthquakes of the same magnitude like we saw in Turkey and Syria, or does it vary based on where you are in the world? Is that a thing? So frequency and magnitude of the earthquakes that are typically experienced in regions are, are some of the major factors that we consider when we think of an area as, as a high hazard earthquake risk. 
um, the likelihood that a higher magnitude earthquake occurs is certainly far greater in regions such as Turkey and Syria where those events happen, as well as other areas like California. Of course, there can be a really long gap of time between when these major events occur. So that tends to be what allows for a lot of us to maybe stop thinking about some of these seismically prone regions for being as active as what they truly can be. That is not to say, though, that major earthquake events cannot happen in some of the less active seismic regions. Again, going back to those two examples of Charleston, South Carolina, and that new Madrid seismic uh, zone in Missouri, both have experienced major high magnitude events, but they occurred in the 1800s when there was a much less densely populated area, a far different world than we live in today. Right. So having said that, it's interesting because, you know, things like wildfires, tornadoes, hurricanes, a lot of the natural disasters that we know have seasons, you know, to, to some degree, you can at least predict what hurricane season is. You don't always know if you're going to get one or how many or how big that kind of thing, but at least it's on our radar. Is there any kind of a similar way to predict an earthquake, especially when the gap in time can be so extensive, like you said? Great question. And I think this is something that really influences the way we think and behave as it pertains to earthquakes. Simply put, there's currently no scientific means to predict an earthquake. It's not possible for us to know when an earthquake will occur, where it might strike, and the potential magnitude or strength of that event. There's no notable scientific progress right now either that would really suggest that we are going to be able to predict earthquakes in the near-term future. While we can't really predict when an earthquake will occur, there are scientific and statistical models that have allowed us to really understand, you know, relatively speaking, when and where, what is the likelihood a specific region experiences a certain magnitude earthquake over an extended period of time. This by no means replaces the precision of a weather forecast, which we benefit from when it comes to preparing for other natural hazards, like you mentioned, tornadoes, earthquakes, wildfires. These are all events we can predict their behavior a bit more reasonably speaking, using the technology available to us. So we shouldn't be expecting the weather person to really be providing us earthquake predictions anytime soon. Something similar that we might, you know, be aware of or maybe spoke with somebody a little more elderly in the past or people that we have suggested that they can predict an earthquake, possibly by feeling an ache in their bones or similar ailments like that. These are common personal anecdotes that people might relate to predicting upcoming seismic events. Sometimes those predictions might even come true. That is not to suggest these are reasonable ways to actually predict an earthquake. So if somebody's suggesting they're feeling a little off that day and there might be an earthquake, they might be right, but I would not rely on them to be predicting earthquakes for the future either. <laughs> I think I think that's a fair point. We'll we'll take it with a grain of salt. Sometimes um, you just feel it in your bones, but your bones <laughs> might be wrong too. <laughs> <laughs> fair enough. Um, so if you can't predict an earthquake, the best really that someone can do then is try to mitigate risk in advance, right? And then have a response plan. So can you talk a little bit about things that businesses can do? Obviously, this is going to vary based on your proximity to an area that could be more prone to quake, right? Um, what do businesses do to mitigate? Absolutely. And like you said, since we cannot predict when earthquakes are going to occur, our efforts are always going to be best left mitigating for the potential effects of these hazards and being prepared should the event actually occur. It's an eventuality that we should be ready for in these regions. If we live or travel in the earthquake regions, 
we should always be prepared for the potential that this event is going to happen. Truthfully speaking, mitigation is all going to begin with the design of structures that are built to modern seismic design codes. In the USA and many other regions of the world, modern codes are the backbone that's going to support structures after an initial seismic event occurs. These modern codes are put forth with life safety in mind, and they help to effectively limit the likelihood that a building experiences a catastrophic structural collapse during what would be considered a design level earthquake for that code. Although a building may still be left uninhabitable following a major event and at risk for failure should future earthquakes occur, we know that there is a far greater likelihood that a structure designed to modern seismic codes will not experience a catastrophic failure during these events. We know from our history of recently experienced earthquakes that code advancements over the years have been a major factor in reducing the overall casualties and property damages experienced during these events. Besides designing and constructing these buildings to modern seismic codes, building owners can also make further considerations at their site that will help limit the risk of earthquake damages both during and after that event. These are common recommendations made by Zurich ZRS risk engineers that support these efforts, including the installation of seismic shutoff valves that would allow for gas lines to automatically close during an earthquake. These low cost installations are proven to reduce the risk of devastating fires or explosions occurring inside a building after an earthquake is first felt. Additionally, business owners can consider installation of seismic bracing and flexible piping systems that allow for these systems that contain water to shake without failure. Limiting the risk of equipment toppling and the subsequent water damage or sprinkler systems impairments that can be common after even lighter seismic events. These are all very low cost, actually implementable improvements that our customers make day in and day out and help limit the damages that they might experience should an earthquake occur. That's really interesting. I had no idea you could actually construct pipes that could have the flexibility to withstand quaking like that. Is that fairly common for buildings to do that? Is this just something I don't know because I wouldn't be in that industry? So sometimes the differences are very, very subtle and hard to pick up maybe if you're not in the industry or looking for these types of details, like somebody who might live in the seismic zones try to pick up day in and day out. A common example, Stephanie, would be the connection that is made between, let's say, a kitchen refrigerator or another appliance that's going to utilize water in the actual water line. By providing a more flexible like plastic type of tubing versus a rigid, uh, like a steel or harder plastic line that might fail during that earthquake, a flexible line can shake, possibly not rupture during that earthquake, and then systems can be restored to service as usual, hopefully avoiding a lot of water damage following the event. There's so okay. many systems in a building that utilize water that there's a lot of opportunities to provide those connections and reduce the risk of that subsequent water damage that we know is very, very common after an earthquake. So I guess you're helping me to paint a different picture in my mind of what this can look like, because like probably a lot of other people, what I personally know about earthquakes is just what I see in the news, which is, you know, toppled buildings or crumbled buildings. But you're actually talking about things that were there an event that's not so devastating that everything collapses. This is helping to protect businesses and keep them relatively intact, right? Absolutely. And you think okay. of regions like California, many people experience earthquakes day in and day out there, and they don't think twice about them. It's a way of life. Earthquakes come in many shapes and different sizes. You know, we've referenced terms like magnitude, which is a reflection of the strength or intensity of the earthquake itself. 
lower magnitude earthquakes can result in damages. Those damages may not be the structural collapse that we see from these devastating events like those in Turkey and Syria, but they could be utility disruptions, water damages, fire following earthquakes, or issues with processing lines that could have possibly been avoided should these additional considerations have been made to those systems themselves. These are exactly the types of areas where our engineers can have influence working with our customers and supporting real improvement actions and opportunities that can be completed on site without having to go back and redesign the whole building. And I'm and I'm really glad that you mentioned infrastructure because it made me think of another question, which is sometimes you might not have a business that's really a so much traditional brick and mortar footprint. You know, they could be in other industries and not like a hospital or a school or that kind of thing. They obviously face risk as well. And building presence being one of them. But what it's making me think of is other disruptions, as you mentioned, infrastructure. So electricity, travel, communication, all those kind of things. Do the risks and the mitigating strategies look different for them? Absolutely. There's going to be a whole another set of separate considerations that those types of companies or businesses that don't operate in that traditional brick and mortar sense are going to have to have in place as part of their business continuity slash business resilience plans when it comes to planning for these earthquake events. Even without a structural presence in an earthquake zone, all businesses should really begin their considerations by understanding whether their own employees and customers could be exposed to earthquakes. Mm -hmm. Businesses can proactively support their own staff who live in these zones by sharing relevant information on the hazard particularly when it comes to how they can better prepare themselves, their homes, their families, should one of these earthquakes occur. Maybe even businesses can help their own staff who live in the earthquake zones by providing them with essentials like go bags and other low-cost earthquake preparedness items that could then be available at their residences, again, ready to go should an earthquake happen. We always know that all businesses are going to be better prepared to respond to these types of events when their staff and employees are all better prepared themselves to respond, to support their own families, and then ideally return back to work when conditions allow for it. Besides helping their own staff prepare, all businesses really should be aware of their network of operations and how it interacts with their overall business resilience planning. A business might rely on multiple suppliers, data center services, or other operations or aspects of a supply chain that operate within some sort of earthquake exposed region. In our highly globalized world, we know that a business can easily feel the local effects to their operations of an earthquake, even if that earthquake actually occurred somewhere halfway around the world. We've learned a lot about supply chain, right? (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And a lot of the time, unfortunately, Stephanie, these supply chain vulnerabilities do not surface themselves until after these events occur. Again, I think this is an area where our engineers really excel, especially those who have experience in the business resilience fields and asking those deep questions. Hey, where is your exposure around the globe? knowing that the natural hazards we know and prepare for here are very different than what they might be preparing for over there. So there's mitigation, right? And then there's having a response plan in place. And is that kind of what you're referencing? If something does happen, we all have to have a plan. We need to know what it is and people need to be aware enough to execute it, right? Absolutely. Going back to a key point that we brought up earlier and continue to reiterate, we cannot predict these events, right? So any earthquake response plan is critical to making sure people and businesses are going to be ready to act should that quake occur. 
This plan is really going to start, I think, with have, making sure that emergency supplies are on hand, whether that's at a business or at a personal residence. Some of those essential supplies could be first aid kits, water, radios, batteries, and other essential supplies. I referenced go bags earlier. It's very easy to acquire these things pre-assemble and again, ready to go should you have to turn to it in the event. We're not going to know when an earthquake might occur. It's not going to be possible necessarily to prepare our buildings for these events. We have to focus on preparing ourselves. When it comes to responding to an earthquake after these events happen, that's when an earthquake response plan should really be tailored to the operations on the site and how people are going to respond and return to their businesses after these events occur. So reducing the risk of additional damages following an earthquake is one of the primary considerations as people start to return to their businesses or return to their homes. People returning to homes and businesses should be careful to re-enter any structure. Any structure could be showing signs of structural damages following an earthquake. We need to be very careful not to enter structures that do show obvious signs of damages. And really, property owners should be prudent to have structural engineers come on site and assess any potential concerns before deciding that a building is ready to be re-inhabited. Many earthquakes are followed by powerful aftershocks that lead to further structural damages and possible collapse of structures. And that includes structures that are designed to modern seismic codes. Additionally, home and building owners need to be aware of the common risks associated with fire and or water damage after earthquakes. We talked about some of those risks earlier, but people should be mindful of the signs such as natural gas and propane. These systems, they have smells, right? We can be aware of those smells if you know it. Notice that that's a sign not to occupy the property. Contact the utility providers and likely the fire department as well to help you respond safely. Um, Additionally, property owners should probably be aware of how to safely disconnect these services or who they have to contact in order to disconnect these services should there be concerns following an earthquake event. It's a lot to think about. Thank you for sharing your experience and your thoughts on that. Um, a different line of question now. Are there any indications that climate change is having any impact on either the frequency or severity of earthquakes? Any correlation that that you guys are seeing or hearing or thinking about? Now, this is a very much a developing field and so much so that I, I probably don't have too much to say concretely on it today, Stephanie, but there are some early indicators that scientists are making some links between climate change, specifically the impacts of sea level rise and glacier ice melt okay. and the effects that that could have on seismic activity. As ice melts, we're essentially putting more weight onto the tectonic plates of the ocean. Hmm. How this weight causes changes to those plates, fault lines, and possible seismic activity, we're not really sure right now. We but I'm yeah, sure this is an yet. area where scientists will continue to research and fill out our understanding going forward. But from a theoretical perspective, there are some links that are being looked into right now between climate change and earthquakes. That's very interesting. As you said, developing information. So then what about the phenomenon of man-made earthquakes? Can you touch on that topic a little bit? Yeah, certainly. These can be the result of activities that disrupt groundwater tables. Common examples of activities that tend to disrupt groundwater tables include fracking, mining, wastewater disposal, which is often linked to oil and gas industries, as well as the creation and upkeep of dams and reservoirs, which support drinking water systems, power supplies, and other 
key infrastructure that we rely on as a society. Anytime we are disrupting the groundwater table and basically the many layers of earth that are formed below us, we can cause some man-made earthquakes, including in our areas that we don't typically expect earthquakes, such as Oklahoma, where there's been a huge uptick in these man-made earthquakes in recent years. So, Jimmy, one last question. You mentioned this at the very beginning, and it made me realize that um, we can be prepared for the space that we live in. We can choose you know, where to build a house or a business, that kind of thing. But we also travel. We travel the globe. And I'm not necessarily going to know if I'm heading towards someplace that is potentially earthquake prone or et cetera. But now I kind of feel like that needs to be something that I look into. So do you have any advice for people who travel in terms of finding out if their destination might be susceptible to earthquakes and how they could prepare? Because I don't know if my go bag is going to fit in my suitcase. <laughs> no, and, and I don't think you'll you'll want to pay the additional carry-on fees or try to get it through TSA either, depending right. on what's inside that's gonna, the go bag. That's going to ask some questions. Yeah. Uh, more harm than it's worth likely bringing the go bag with you. But when it comes to how you want to prepare, Stephanie, um, there's a lot of resources online that we can all tap into as we're preparing for our travel. Uh, when it comes to the earthquake prone areas, we've mentioned some of them already today. Like we had brought up earlier, it's a wide, wide section of the world, including many very fantastic common travel destinations. When it comes to earthquake and understanding is an area I'm traveling to exposed to earthquakes, I suggest doing some searching online. Typically, the U.S. Department of State and the local U.S. Embassy for the place you are traveling to will offer lots of guidance on the various concerns you might have traveling there, whether those concerns are tied to natural hazards, including earthquakes, safety in terms of getting around and being in the country, ongoing political unrest, and a wide array of information all about the place you're traveling to from the perspective of the U.S. Department of State and how they suggest you stay safe while you're out there. So if we were to look into this as I'm planning a trip to Japan, let's say, I would look up the U.S. local embassy in Japan, and there is a large page that goes over the hazard of earthquakes, how Japan as a country prepares for them, information on how buildings are built and the codes that they are built to, which places Japan in a good place in being prepared to mitigate for the effects of earthquakes, but also speaking on the fact that Japan has experienced significant earthquakes, including going back just over 12 years ago, actually, we're just about the anniversary of the major Fukushima earthquake in Japan. There's loads of information on that specific website as how you as a traveler would prepare, who you would want to contact should one of these events occur, what resources might be offered to you as a traveler in Japan, either through the local embassy of the United States or other Japanese-based government resources. Again, searching this online, through the Department of State and the local embassies is probably going to be your best go-to resource, at least as an American traveling. But really, anybody, of course, can take advantage of those sorts of online resources. Okay. Thank you for sharing that. That's a fascinating step in trip planning that I have to be honest, I have not taken in the past, but that's going to be part of my plan going forward. I appreciate you sharing that. Certainly. And I will say, just in terms of general advice, should you experience an earthquake, 
you're going to have to focus on sheltering, finding shelter, whether it's inside of the building, should you already be one, shielding your body from possible falling or flying debris coming off of the ceilings, walls, things like wall hangings, like paintings or artwork, um, ceiling hung light fixtures, loose, large furniture, like dressers. These are the types of things that are going to fall during an earthquake and possibly hurt you if you're in that scenario. Your best suited sheltering in place should you be in a building during an earthquake. But if you happen to be outside while one is occurring, you're going to want to try to move to an open area, stay away from structures, whether that's buildings, um, other structures or monuments, utility infrastructure, trees, large objects that surround you that you would want to be clear of the path of should it fail. Um, but again, if you happen to be outside, don't go into a building, stay out, just stay clear of your surroundings as best you can safely during that event. So many topics we have covered today that have just not been on my radar based on the geography of where I live or where I've traveled, what have you. So this is a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much, Jimmy, for taking the time to join us, to share your expertise, your thoughts, your experience on this. Um, really enjoy talking with you. Absolutely. Thank you very much for the time, Stephanie. And to our Future of Risk podcast listeners, thank you for joining us. We hope you found this conversation to be interesting for you and relevant as well. And we look forward to bringing you more great content in the future. Thank you. Future of Risk, presented by Zurich North America. If you like the show, we'd appreciate it if you left a comment or review wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Let us know what you think at media at ZurichNA.com and join us next week. The information in this audio recording was compiled from sources believed to be reliable for general information purposes and is intended for Zurich clients and business partners. The information contained here may be useful to you or your enterprise when developing your own policies and procedures. The policies and procedures applicable to your enterprise should take into account the specific circumstances of your business and business environment, which is beyond the capacity of this podcast. Any and all information provided is not intended to constitute advice of any nature and is specifically not legal advice, and accordingly, you should consult with your own legal counsel. We do not guarantee the accuracy of this information presented or any results and further assume no liability in connection with this recording and the information provided therein. Moreover, Zurich reminds you that the information provided cannot be assumed to contain every acceptable safety and compliance procedure or that additional procedures might not be appropriate under the circumstances. The subject matter of this recording is not tied to any specific insurance product, nor will adopting these policies and procedures ensure coverage under any insurance policy. We encourage listeners to seek additional information from credible sources. Thank you.